starting with verse 1. Then Elisha, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshabel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Baana, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. Jehoiada, the son of Paseah, and Meshulam, the son of Besoidea, repaired the gate of Yeshana. They let its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Malasha, the Gibeonite, and Jaden, the Maranathite, the men of Gibeon, and of Mitzpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Harhiah, goldsmiths repaired. And next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Raphiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Judea, the son of Harumaph, Harumaf, <laughs> repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashab, Hash, Hashabneah, repaired. Melchizedek, the son of Harim, and Hashub, the son of Pahath Morab, repaired another section and the tower of the ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. Hanun and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, doors, its bolts, and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Malchijah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hakarim, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalom, the son of Kol Jose, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shelah of the king's garden as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Hashbuk, ruler of half the district of Bezur, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David as far as our artificial pool and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired. Rehum, the son of Bani, next to him, Heshabiah, ruler of half the district of Keilah, repaired for his district. After him, their brothers repaired. Bavai and the son of Hanadad, ruler of the district of Keilah. Next to him, Ezer, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mitzpah, repaired another section opposite the accent to the armory at the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, repaired another section from the buttress to the house, to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired another section 
from the door of, from the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. Verse 22. After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area, repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashub repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Maaseah, son of Hananiah, Hananiah, repaired beside his house. After him, Benui, the son of Hinnadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. Palal, the son of Uzai, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Padiah, the son of Parosh, and the temple servants living on Ophel, repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Immer, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Zechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shemaliah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zalaf, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Malchijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants, opposite the muster gate, and to the upper chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. All right, we got through it. <laughs> All right, let's pray. <clears throat> Thank you, Lord, for your word. I pray in the few moments we have, I ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, transform our hearts and minds to be more like your son. Thank you, Lord, for what you will do by your grace. Jesus, name I pray. Amen. All right. Let's switch this. Okay. So before we jump into chapter 3, let's review the theme of the book, the long version from Pastor Rod, which is the faithfulness of Israel's covenant God to remember his people by restoring them to himself through the leadership of his chosen vessel, Nehemiah. And the short version of that is God is faithful to restore his troubled people. And what I've compiled to be the theme of this sermon is this. The unity of God's people, the Israelites, for God's purposes to rebuild his people by repairing God's city, Jerusalem, under God's chosen vessel, Nehemiah. So let's review chapters 1 through 2 for sake of context. Due to Israel's sin, God disciplined his people by allowing the Babylonians to overtake Jerusalem, destroy the city, including the temple that Solomon built, and exile some of its citizens to Babylon. They were in exile for about 70 years. Then there were three returns back to the promised land. The third return from Babylon was led by Nehemiah. When Nehemiah was in Babylon, he heard of the destruction of Jerusalem, and he wept mourned, fasted, and prayed. Chapter 1, verse 4. He pleaded with God to act on behalf of his people based on the covenant he gave to Moses. Nehemiah prayed in essence, God, you made a covenant with Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you. If you obey, I will bring you back. 
back to a place I've chosen to make my name dwell there. Chapter 1, verse 9. And Lord, I want you to make this happen. He had a strong desire to see his people restored. God answered Nehemiah's prayers by sending him to be their leader. Nehemiah took action based on his concern for God's people and God's covenant. He prayerfully goes before the king of Babylon to allow him to leave Babylon with letters of safe passage, as well as some materials for the rebuilding project. Chapter 2, verses 7, 7 and 8. Nehemiah gets to Jerusalem and secretly inspects the wall at night. He then announces to the returned exiles the need to rebuild the wall. They agree, and they follow his lead. You can clearly see the gracious hand of God was upon Nehemiah, chapter 2, verse 18. At the same time, Nehemiah is praying and depending upon God while he takes action. This is a beautiful picture of God's sovereignty and human responsibility working together to accomplish God's redemptive plans. As we get into chapter 3, you'll notice a few things. First, God is not mentioned in this passage, but this doesn't mean he's not involved. Refer to the book of Esther. God has been at work this whole time. He never ceases to be at work. If he did, then he would not be God. Secondly, Nehemiah is not mentioned. Yes, the, ne- the name of Nehemiah is mentioned, but it's unlikely to be in reference to the leader Nehemiah. And with that said, he's obviously actively providing leadership to the rebuilding project. Third, the chapter is written from the perspective that the walls have already been rebuilt. We know this because of verse 3, which says that they laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. Well, the doors and the bars weren't finished by the time of Nehemiah 6.1, which reads, Although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates. So this means that the book of Nehemiah does not follow a strict chronology, at least in, you know, as it relates to the wall. Fourth, there are a lot of names and gates and towers mentioned in this chapter, but there's no other chapter like this in all of Scripture which walks through the architecture of Jerusalem. There's a beauty to this chapter because it is unique. With that said, this chapter is not about a construction project. Now, the wall does serve certain needs of protection and security for a small nation, especially a nation that feels defeated. The wall also serves as a symbol on multiple levels. It is a symbol of the people's identity that they belong to God and his protection is over them. It is also a symbol of reversing the shame of defeat due to their sin. So Israel's sin led to the destruction of the wall, and the reconstruction of the wall led to, at least in symbol, reversing the defeat and the shame. Well, doesn't want to work. Oh, there it goes. All right, there you go. To illustrate how the wall is connected to the identity of the people, imagine you are a resident of New York on 9-11-2001. At the time of its construction, the Twin Towers were the largest buildings in the world. The Twin Towers, a symbol of American power, were each struck by a plane and crumbled to the ground. Watching the news that day, you had feelings of sadness, frustration, anger, and shock. Put yourself in the Israelite shoes. 
how much more intense would their feelings be since Jerusalem and its walls represented God and his chosen people? Hopefully we can understand more fully the intense desire that Nehemiah had to see his family restored and his homeland restored. Greater than that of Nehemiah, God has an even stronger desire to restore his troubled people, a people that would sadly continue in their sin. You see that in chapter 13, verse 17 and 18, as they profane the Sabbath. A couple questions. Since the Mosaic Covenant motivated Nehemiah to action, how are you motivated by the new covenant, the gospel? Secondly, do you long to see the name of God restored in the culture, in the home, in the church, wherever he is not receiving the honor due him? It starts with us. So with that, let's talk about the wall. What do we know about the walls from this chapter? Well, in describing the rebuilding project, Nehemiah gives the names of Jerusalem's ten gates. And like I said, this is the only listing like this in Scripture. So looking at this 3D model, the north side is actually on the right side of the photo, which we can't really see too clearly. But the order of Nehemiah in chapter 3 actually follows the north side, which is the right side, and goes counterclockwise, so to the left. So it goes in order from top right to left. Here's a 2D model with the north being the north side. (laughs) The type of work being done is sometimes described in this chapter as building and other times as repairing, which suggests that sometimes they were putting up new wall and other times they were renovating the old wall. If you were to count up all the sections that were worked on, you would find over 40 sections of wall with over 40 sets of workers. This was no small project for Nehemiah and for the Israelites. We also know that this construction record in Nehemiah 3 is not exhaustive. There are times when a person was working on another section or a second section without any mention of the first. For example, look at verse 19. Next to him, Ezer, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mitzpah, repaired another section opposite the accent to the armory at the buttress. This is the only mention of Ezer in the chapter. Also, based on Nehemiah 6.15, the wall was completed in only 52 days. It was completed this quickly because everyone was doing their part. And here in verse 3, or sorry, in the first verse, I, I find the key verse to this chapter. We read that the rebuilding of the wall was consecrated by the high priest. Later in chapter 12, the same word is used to describe a celebration of the wall. The Hebrew word for consecrated can be translated as dedication. And, let's see. But actually, dedication in chapter 3 and chapter 12 are different. Chapter 12, as I said, they're celebrating the finished work of the wall. And in chapter 3, they're dedicating the project to God and his purposes. In other words, in chapter 3, the rebuilding project is used to be set apart as God's project to be treated in a sacred way. And we we find the same Hebrew word in the same form in Exodus 19, verse 23. Before God gives the Ten Commandments, 
Mount Sinai is consecrated by establishing boundaries. That way, it would keep out those who would profane God's holy presence. So Nehemiah 3, the walls are set apart as holy. This rebuilding project is to be done in a way that honors God, and the wall will be established as a landmark of honor to God for his faithfulness. It would be easy for the Israelites to rebuild the wall just for their own sake, just for their own protection. But on the onset of chapter 3, we see the priest declaring that this work is going to be a holy work. The wall was so important and bound up with their identity as God's chosen people that one commentator went so far as to say that the new wall was an extension of the temple itself. That's a big statement. One reason is, in chapter 13, verse 22, we see the Levites being asked to guard the city, and they're the priestly tribe of Israel. Question, would you ever think of a remodel or a renovation project as a thing to be set apart as holy? What's so holy about laying brick? In 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul writes, So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Now if we reread that verse with a Nehemiah spin on it, it would read like this. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, even lame brick, do all for the glory of God. I think most of us are very familiar with this verse But if we took it seriously, it would change our lives. And I'm speaking to myself as well. Paul gives this command because everything, which includes whatever you or I do, is to be for the glory of God. Over and over, God has written in the Bible the phrase, for my own sake, or for my name's sake, which we find in Nehemiah 1, which is another way of saying, for my glory. Isaiah 43.25 reads, this is God speaking, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. So even our salvation is not primarily for us, it's primarily for his glory. In John 17.24, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, he says, or he prays, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory. So Jesus prays to the Father that those who belong to him would see his glory. So it's not the laying of brick that makes it holy. It's the reason, it's the intention, it's the goal for laying the brick, which is to have a new wall as a reminder of God's goodness, forbearance, faithfulness, presence, and covenant. The wall points to God's greatness, which gives him glory, which makes the project a holy endeavor. This means that what the world considers common, or what the church calls secular, can be set apart as an opportunity to give God glory, which makes it a consecrated thing. And that's what we're supposed to do, right? As image bearers of God, to bring him glory. Being an image bearer of God means you show the world what God is like. To be specific, where God has placed you 
in your vocation, staying at home with the kids, which is a job. <laughs> Just want to clarify. Or working outside the home, or even if you're retired. Those things are not an end to itself or a means just to make a living. It's bigger than that. It's to help you see his glory and to work in a way that gives him glory so that others would see his glory. So just as we are, we are to do all things for his glory, all things are a means for his glory. Question. Do you view your job or daily tasks as an opportunity to see God's glory or reflect God's glory? What are areas of your life that you view as secular or normal that could be reevaluated with a new lens for God's glory? As we are called to remember the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15:1, what are other landmarks in your life that help you remember the goodness of God towards you? And so as we go through the sermon, my objective is not just to give you a bunch of facts and information about a wall, right? This is not a documentary. This is a sermon. So my intent is for us to hear the word of God and be changed. And so I think it is right to make an emphasis on God's glory. Let's talk about the builders themselves. Who are they? What do we learn from chapter 3 about them? Well, first, we learn that they have various backgrounds and vocations. Among the 40 sets of workers, there are several professions mentioned in this passage. High priest, in verse 1. Priest, verse 22. Goldsmiths, verse 8. Perfumers, verse 8. Rulers, verse 9. And merchants, verse 32. Were any construction workers mentioned? In my mind, it's not your typical all-star building team, especially for a project as important as this one. Now, granted, as I mentioned before, this passage is not an exhaustive account, so there could have been you know, construction workers there, but it's interesting that the people that were mentioned here and were involved in the project do not have, at least, at least by trade, a masonry or carpentry background. Number two, they have various building skills. So with any group of people, you have various levels of skill. Now, I realize I'm assuming here, but it seems like some people were handy, such as the goldsmiths, who used tools and materials every day, and probably people that were not as handy, like the perfumers. <laughs> it's an assumption, this, this saying. But it's just interesting that you know, God has these people working on the wall. Thirdly, various economic and social statuses. There are people that were powerful and in positions of authority, such as rulers, and people that did not hold political office, such as the merchants. And everyone is getting their hands dirty for the glory of God. Fourth, we have men and women involved. If you notice in verse 12, the mention of daughters is there. So men and women were part of the building team. So overall, you see relatives, co-workers, and neighbors working alongside to rebuild the wall. Now, as was the case with this building project, you don't have to be a specialist in order to help. Your day job doesn't have to be a stagehand 
for a theater company in order to break down chairs for our Sunday morning gathering. The same applies with spiritual gifts. If your home group leader asks you to host the next gathering, are you going to respond, well, JD, I don't have the gift of hospitality, so I won't be able to host. Or, after hearing that prayer request, I wanted to go over to that person and give them a hug and encourage them, but I still have the gift of encouragement. Now, yes, we should use the, the gifts that God has given us, both spiritual and other gifts and talents, but at the same time, we should not limit our involvement or for ministry or service based on our giftedness. There are times you do something just because you are a Christian, regardless of your spiritual gifting. Do you know your spiritual gifts? How are you using them? It is again involved with the ministry of the church that we discover how God has gifted us. If you wanted to know, if you're gifted to be a teacher, the best way is not just to read a book about teaching, is to actually start teaching. And after a season of doing so, people affirm and confirm that gifting. Now, there's several reasons why God may want you to get involved. First, to know your giftedness. Two, to stretch you in ways that you had not before. Three, to grow closer to him. Four, to help your fellow believers, a.k.a. the church. And fifth, to act in obedience to Christ. I know there are several people here involved in this church, from setting up on Sunday mornings to teaching the kids to joining a home group to helping with special events like the 4th of July, which my wife thanks you, (laughs) and even providing a meal for a family in need. If you are on the fence about getting involved, I encourage you to ask God, is there an area of ministry that I should get involved with? And then ask Pastor Rod or Pastor J.D., what is the greatest area of ministry need here at the church? Or which small group do you think I should join? Let's look at the involvement of the builders. So with any group of people, there's various levels of involvement. Whether you're a student in class working on a group project, or a church member in Castor Valley, or return exile in Jerusalem, the text in Nehemiah 3 does call out certain people. When I mean call out, I mean to criticize for certain behaviors. And also, others are praised for their efforts. So first of all, we have no involvement. Did you catch verse 5 as I read it earlier? And next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but the nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. As a side note, the word Lord could mean master or supervisor, or it could mean God. And the commentators are split on this. And you're probably thinking, well, of course, I'm going to take the sermon-friendly you know, interpretation and say it means God. But the truth is, it doesn't matter if the word means God or it means supervisor. The fact that the nobles rejected working on the wall, they are rejecting God himself by not participating in the sacred work of joining God's people and rebuilding God's city. Because these nobles did not want to participate, they will be forever remembered as those guys. 
This chapter has a steady pattern of so-and-so repaired, so-and-so repaired. And every time there's a break from the pattern, it stands out. And you don't want to stand out like these nobles. Secondly, high percentage of involvement. On the bright side, there was an, this was, was an all-hands-on-deck type of project. This is proven by all the types of people helping out, from rulers to perfumers. This is a wonderful picture of the people of God in a tough situation joined together to get something done. Because our church sets up and breaks down every single Sunday, this too is a weekly picture of God's people joined together for God's work. And we don't want to take that for granted, nor do we want to lose sight of the big picture. Let's take, for example, setting up chairs. It's easy when you do that every week to get tiresome of it. But I want to encourage you, if you're worry, weary from doing good, that whatever you do or wherever you serve on Sunday mornings, you're giving someone an opportunity to worship God and to hear the gospel. So this, this could make setting up chairs a holy endeavor. You can look at the other slide I had before, and you could just substitute... Set up chairs, right? Someone up, sets up chairs, and the auditorium is prepared for people to sit. And what happens? God is worshiped, therefore, God is glorified, which could make set up chairs a holy endeavor. So it's easy just to look at the task as a task by itself, but I want to encourage you based on. What we learn from this passage is that common things can be used for God's purposes, even when they seem mundane or uh, basic. All right. Uh, whoops. Again, again, my uh, main point right there. All right. Let's go back. Thirdly, energetic involvement. As we've seen among the building teams, most people did something. But out of that group, some did more than others. Specifically, some people worked on one section while others worked on multiple sections. Everyone has different levels of stamina, ability, or availability. The point is giving what you have of your time, energy, and resources to God. Now, the passage does call out someone in a good way. His name is Baruch, whose name means blessed. We find him in verse 20. He repairs another section, which is great. But there is a Hebrew word here that is not translated by the ESV. So this is how the NS, NSAB, NASB reads. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, zealously repaired another section. So Nehemiah commends him for his passion and zeal for the way he did this menial task of building. He is the only person that his work is described in this way. How we do things with our motivations and intentions do matter to God. It's, it can be the difference between laying brick and laying brick for the glory of God. Fourth, devoted involvement. It's also important to note that not all the builders were from Jerusalem. 
For those that had houses near the workstations, they were obviously locals. But some people traveled several, several miles from their hometown to participate in this project. In verse 13 it reads, Hanun and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors with bolts and bars, repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. The city of Zenoah was about 13 miles away from Jerusalem. To give some perspective, Oracle Arena is about 11 or 12 miles from here. So with traveling that distance, it's no surprise that these people repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the Dungate. That is commitment. Fifth, passionate involvement. This is where you see wisdom on Nehemiah's part and how he assigned people to which workstations. And he did it many times according to their passion. We see this in at least three different ways. First, the priest repaired the sheep gate. And by the way, this gate was near the temple. It was possibly named this way because sheep were brought through the gate for sacrifice. In other words, the priests were assigned to this section because that's where their day jobs were. It also explains why that wall or that gate was consecrated. Secondly, the rulers repaired in their own districts, verse 18. Thirdly, many builders repaired opposite their own houses, verse 28, for example. Now, if you were there, you'd be more likely to repair a piece of wall near your house than near the Dungate, right? If the entire wall was repaired except for a portion in front of your house, you'd make sure that your family was protected. And you probably would make sure that the wall was done correctly and not rushed. So in closing, we see the unity displayed by the Israelites for God's purposes. And this is a picture of what the church should be. Because of the gospel, the church is a community of exiles working on an all-hands-on-deck rebuilding project as we seek to rebuild one another and the world around us for the glory of God. I'll read that again. Because of the gospel, the church is a community of exiles working on an all-hands-on-deck rebuilding project as we seek to rebuild one another and the world around us for the glory of God. So like the Israelites, believers in Christ, because of the gospel, are first exiles, not to Babylon, but to the world. In Philippians 3.20, Paul writes that our citizenship is in heaven. And Jesus says in John 17.16, we are not of this world. We need to be reminded that this earth is not our home. Secondly, because of the gospel, we are, we are united, everyone using their gifts. Romans 12 says, members of one another and then having gifts that differ. Thirdly, because of the gospel, we are united with everyone caring for one another. According to 1 Corinthians 12, Paul writes, God has so composed the body that the members may have the same care for one another. 
So the church, the body of Christ, is to live the one another's to each other. Fourth, because of the gospel, we are united with everyone rebuilding, of course in a spiritual sense, towards Christ's likeness. Let's read from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 through 16. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, Paul writes, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all maintain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro from the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Number five. Because of the gospel, we are set apart as holy. According to 1 Corinthians 1, Paul introduces this letter this way. To those sanctified, which means consecrated, in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together. In 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 9, Paul writes... Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So in Nehemiah, the wall is consecrated. In the gospel, we are consecrated. This should give us a whole out, different outlook on our lives. We are to be set apart as holy. So the common things in life can be used for holy purposes, which bring glory to God. And so as we prepare our hearts to take communion, consider the sacrifice that Jesus did, the costs he underwent, taking on the wrath of God, so we can be holy in his sight and then live as holy people that belong to him. Let's pray. Good morning, Father. Thank you um, for your word. Thank you for taking a passage that doesn't seem to have much in it but to bring life to it, Lord. And I pray, Holy Spirit, you'd bring life to our time. And I ask you again, Lord, to please change us. We want to live more for your glory. We want to not waste our time. So, Lord, please guide us, show us in ways we can better do that and convict us as needed. Thank you, Lord, for the gospel by which this is all made possible. We love you, Lord. Thank you for the cross. Jesus' name I pray, amen.